What on earth does St. Paul have in common with the rap star Eminem in the movie 8 Mile? It's a surprising connection. I'm going to tell you what it's all about. This is Kale Clark, and this is The Faith Explained on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio mobile app. This is our study on St. Paul's letter to the Romans, and I want to pick it up in Romans chapter 9. Let's just read uh, these few verses here. We're going to start at verse 14 and go to verse 23. St. Paul says, What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So, it depends not upon man's will or exertion, but upon God's mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, I have raised you up for the very purpose of showing my power in you, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy upon whomever he wills, and he hardens the heart of whomever he wills. Okay, now what's the connection with Eminem? In the movie Eight Mile, Eminem, who, and this is a pretty much an autobiographical film by Eminem, he's, a, he's and, I, and I'm, not, I'm not a big fan of rap music, although obviously I appreciate the brilliance, especially of freestyle rap, how they can just create incredible rhymes on the fly. In Eight Mile, it talks about Eminem as an aspiring young rapper, and, and, and there's, a, there's a huge rap battle. It's the climactic scene of the movie, and very, very often what happens in these battles is one rapper will attack his opponent in his rap, and he'll say all kinds of terrible things about him, and the crowd will cheer, and he'll hopefully win. But Eminem does something absolutely brilliant and unexpected in his rap. He gets to go first before his opponent, and he completely just takes all the wind out of his sails because every nasty thing that his opponent could possibly say about Eminem, Eminem says it about himself. He accuses himself of all kinds of nasty stuff. So when it comes time for his opponent to rap, he's got nothing. Eminem has already stolen all of his best material. He's got nothing bad to say about the guy because Eminem has already said terrible things about himself. So he, he just basically gives up and Eminem wins. What, what was he doing there? He was essentially doing what's called an accusation audit. And this is exactly what St. Paul is doing in Romans chapter 9. In the business world, especially in the realm of negotiations, high stakes, an accusation audit happens when you, you say all the negative things your opponent across the table might be thinking about you. You bring it out into the open. Now, sometimes people are afraid to do this because they think, man, if I, if I say something negative about myself, I'm going I'm to plant ideas in my counterpart's head. Let's say you want to ask your boss for a raise. You think, man, I don't know if I want to say this, but you might say something to him like, you might think I'm being incredibly greedy here by asking for a 4% raise. You think, man, if I say that, that's going to put the idea in his head. Yeah, maybe this is a greedy person. Maybe he's, he's overstepping here. But you can't do that. You can't implant a negative. But guess what? If they're already thinking that, if they are having that negative thought about you in, the, in, in their heads already, then, then you've got to get that out in the open so you can deal with it. So you might say something like, you might think of being incredibly greedy by asking for a 4% raise, and, and your boss might say back to you, actually, I wasn't thinking about that at all. I, I don't think you're greedy. I just think you're a poor performer. Well, then you've got something else to worry about, and you've just uncovered 
another fact. But at any rate, this is exactly what St. Paul is doing. He is anticipating his imaginary opponent, what they might say back to him when he's making this big argument in Romans. And don't forget, we've just got done uh, with this little section here, which ended off in verse 13 of chapter 9, when St. Paul says, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. As it is written, (laughs) Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that God hated Esau, as we explained. It's simply that he didn't choose Esau. He chose Jacob to be the patriarch. In fact, Jacob's name is changed to Israel, and he's the father of the 12 tribes. Paul is using this to show that throughout the history of Israel, there have always been a remnant of faithful people. Even when maybe the vast majority went off the rails, there's always a faithful remnant. And what he's trying to explain is how can it be that some Israelites have accepted Jesus as Messiah? In fact, many of them have, but many more have not in the early church and even down to our own day. And that's always been the case. And even in the Catholic church, there's a faithful remnant of people that really do believe in Jesus. They're really people of faith. And others are maybe in the church in body, but they're not united to the Lord in spirit. And, and they really don't buy into this stuff. So this is really the backdrop for everything that St. Paul is saying. And so he throws out something that he knows his opponents are thinking. He brings it out into the open. He does an accusation audit. And what he says here in verse 14 is, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. So he, he knows that his opponent is thinking, all right, Paul, you're bringing this up. This doesn't seem fair. Why would God choose one person and not another? Why would he choose Jacob and reject Esau? Why do some people uh, get this gift of faith to believe in Jesus and other people don't? Does this mean that God is being unjust and unfair? And St. Paul says, no, he isn't. He's not. You can't accuse God of that stuff. And so he explains it really by using two Old Testament quotes. And some people even say, by the way, that Paul doesn't really even answer the question when he says, you know, is God unjust? Not at all. But then they say, well, Paul never really explains how he's not unjust, but he actually does. He actually does. If you really read this carefully in these few verses, he does it in the context of how God has acted in salvation history in the past, in the Bible. And so what he does is he picks two quotes from the Old Testament to to sort of illustrate his point. And then he kind of brings it into our own experience. So he gives a quote, and then he says, therefore, whenever the Bible says, therefore, we got to look and see what it's there for, because there's usually a pretty big deal. And the first quote is from the book of Exodus. Now, you'll remember this from our Exodus series on the Faith Explained. What does Paul say here? In verse 15 of chapter 9, For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So, in other words, therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. All right, what's he talking about there? Well, this uh, quote from Exodus chapter 33 When Paul says, uh, uh, it does not depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. What is it? (laughs) That reminds me of another song, an old song by Faith No More. What is it? Well, the it here is God's offer of mercy. God's offer of mercy, divine mercy, which people don't deserve. 
And the actual example that he's using here is from Exodus when the people, after God has gone to all this trouble of getting them out of Egypt, working these miracles, sending the plagues, parting the Red Sea, how do they reward God? By cavorting with the golden calf and committing the sin of apostasy, idolatry. God had every right to wipe them off the face of the earth, start over again with Moses. In fact, he kind of made that offer to Moses. Hey, how about if I just start again with you, just like I started with Adam, the first man in the beginning. And Moses is like, no, no, no. And Paul's already mentioned this in Romans. Moses essentially says, hey, if you're going to blot them out of the book of life, you've got to blot me out too. But God actually chooses to forgive them, even though they totally don't deserve it. It's his sovereign choice. That's, that's the first little verse here that Paul brings up here to show that when God gives us mercy, it's not because we deserve it. It's not because we believed hard enough or, or we, 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 our good deeds somehow deserve God's mercy. No, it's his sovereign and free choice to forgive us. All right, what's the second quote that St. Paul gives right here? Well, th this, is, this is interesting because it's kind of from the flip side. He's just talked about Moses, and now he's going to talk about Pharaoh. Let's look at verse 17. This is obviously the opponent of Moses, just like Eminem had his opponents in the rap battles. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. And then verse 18, Therefore God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. Okay. Well, this is really intriguing. This is really intriguing. God clearly used Pharaoh, in spite of Pharaoh and what Pharaoh wanted to do. He wanted to continue to keep God's people enslaved. He used Pharaoh to bring about his purposes in the world. He might even argue that God raised up Pharaoh, brought him to this position of power so that he could display his glory, so that he can make his fame in the, in the world even more and draw people to him. And, and, and that's exactly what happened. When the Israelites crossed through the Red Sea as if on dry land, they, they, they make their way to the promised land. Peoples were in, in awe of these guys, and they were afraid of the God of Israel. Have you heard about all the miracles that this God of the Israelites did, getting them out of Egypt? We don't want to mess with these people. Not at all. So God, the true God, his fame became very, very well known. You're listening to The Faith Explained on Relevant Radio. I'm your host, Cale Clark. But we, we have to deal with this question of the hardening of the heart of Pharaoh. And this is, this is something that, that when we talk about to harden, I'm not talking about James Harden and his absolutely lethal and undefendable step-back three-pointer. No, I'm talking about how God, does he harden people's hearts so that they resist him and his will, or do they harden their own hearts by choosing to, to reject God in spite of all the evidence and, and just, just being completely obstinate? Theologians argue about this, and we've talked about this before. Hardcore Calvinists believe that God predestines some people to hell. This is not true. This is a, a heresy. But th these, are, these are some of the verses that sometimes they use to, to back up their point here in Romans chapter 9. And reading these verses in isolation, out of context from the rest of Scripture and the teaching of the church throughout all history, you can be forgiven for thinking that. But, but this is why it's really, really important to stick with the magisterium, the teaching office of the Catholic Church. Now, St. Paul seems to be saying here 
that God had a hand in hardening Pharaoh's heart. How do we explain this? Because as Catholics, we do believe in free will and that people freely choose to sin. Well, Scott Hahn, in his uh, commentary on Romans, he has a very, very nice way of explaining this. He, He says there's basically three points that we need to be super aware of when we think about God hardening Pharaoh's heart. Okay, so here's the first thing that uh, Dr. Hahn says. He says, quote, First, Paul derives the concept of divine hardening from the story of the ten plagues in Exodus chapters 7 through 12. Several times in these chapters, God is said to harden Pharaoh's heart, leaving him unresponsive to Moses' pleas to release the Israelites from bondage. Hardening in this context is clearly a form of divine judgment, but we must be careful to interpret this divine action aright. Listen to this. He says, God does not harden Pharaoh's heart in the sense that he overrides his free will and causes him to commit sin. Rather, he surrenders Pharaoh to the consequences of his stubborn rebellion. The more a person resists God's will, the more he degrades his own ability to respond to God's will. And you and I have had that experience as well. When we're kids, the first time we commit a sin, it's really, really difficult. Our conscience is screaming at us. But if we keep doing it, if we persist in it, it becomes easier and easier. And then it becomes a way of life. And it's very difficult to get out of it. Han goes on to say that divine hardening takes place when God stands back and allows this progression to run its course. So so this is interesting, this idea that Pharaoh's making choices here, and but God's just sort of stepping back. He, he's not stopping him from rebelling against God. So this, this is important because if you, if you read Exodus rightly, and Han mentions this, there, there's several verses before it, e- before it ever mentions God hardening Pharaoh's heart, it talks about Pharaoh hardening his own heart. In Exodus 7.14, it says this, Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. So God himself says to Moses, Hey, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He's done this on his own. And then later on, it says, starting with chapter 9, the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh. So, this is interesting. First of all, he hardened his own heart. He made his own choice. And then the second thing that Han says we got to keep in mind here is that just because someone, even if God has a hand in this, allowing this person to go his own way, it doesn't mean that they're damned for all eternity. People can still come to God. And sometimes, sometimes, the Lord's judgments can have the effect in the end of restoring that person. And Han says, look, sometimes people need to be humbled. Sometimes people need to suffer and experience suffering, especially the suffering of being apart from God, before they're ready to admit their pride, humble themselves before God. And in that humiliation, it's often said that there's no humility without humiliation. Sometimes that's the only way certain people are going to seek forgiveness. They're God has to humble them. And that's exactly what happened to St. Paul, by the way, too. Don't forget, he was pretty obstinate when it came to Jesus. He was against Jesus, was uh, very happy to to murder Christians, have them thrown into prison, and all of that stuff. God had to humble him on the road to Damascus, bring him low, knock him to the ground, take away his eyesight for a bit, and and show him who the true light really was. So so Paul himself has experienced this. Now, I don't know whether Pharaoh repented in the end or not, but the point is that sometimes when people experience this, this judgment of God, it can actually be a severe form of mercy. And then the last thing, and this is a really, really important point uh, that Han brings up. 
all of this is to set the stage of what Paul's going to say later. And, and this is sort of one little argument here, Romans 9, 10, 11. What about Israel? How, how does it relate to the Messiah in the age of the church? He's going to explain in chapter 11, part of Israel. God has allowed a hardening of the heart to come upon part of Israel until the full number of the Gentiles have come in to the church. So this this is this is very much the way God has always worked throughout history. He chooses some to have faith. There's a hardening that comes upon part of the people, maybe even sometimes the majority of people, but they're still operating. They, they've freely chosen this at some level, but all of this is sort of happening again in Paul's time, and it happens in our time as well. God is very consistent. He is always the same in the way that he acts. And so that's why Paul brought, brought up these examples of the patriarchs, Abraham, Abraham's kids, their kids, and now later on with Moses. This is the way things have always gone. There's always been a faithful remnant in the people of God that kind of get it and respond to him in faith, even if the others, they just don't see it or, or maybe they won't repent. And that, that's something that we really, really have to remember as we go forward in the letter to the Romans. Very important. So, yes, God has certainly selected some throughout his people for, for very, very unique blessings. We're talking about Abraham. We're talking about Isaac as opposed to Ishmael. We're talking about Jacob instead of Esau. He passed over other people, but it doesn't mean he didn't love them. It just meant that this is the way that God chose to go about his business. But this has nothing to do with whether or not these people can be saved in the end. And really, as Han says, this is very much a great example of something it says in the book of Isaiah. God's ways are not our ways. And how true is that? How true is that? Even when we look at our own lives, we want to say, God never checked with me about anything. This is not the way I would have drawn it up. But the mysterious interplay of, of God's sovereign plan intermingled with human free will, he, he will not be outfoxed. God is the divine chess master. He's arranging all the pieces on the chess table, both in the history of humanity, large-scale macro, and in our own lives as well at the micro level. He's going to make sure that we have the best opportunity to see his will and do it. And so we, we, we are just not in a place where we can question God. And, and this is really what the next section is going to be all about. Um, Paul will say in verse 20, Who are you, a human being, to answer back to God? Who are you to, to question the way that God does things? Sometimes a little humility goes a long way. And sometimes God has to actually have a hand in that humbling so that we can come back to him. And th this too is a grace. This, too, is really a grace. So we're going to just leave it there for now in Romans. We'll come back to the rest of that chapter in the next edition of the Faith Explained on Relevant Radio. But guess what? It's time now for our Faith Explained Q&A session. So let's open up the mailbag right now. Okay, as we jump into our Q&A session right now on the Faith Explained, this is part two of a two-part Q&A that we started last time. And I had been asked a question from Derek in Texas, a great question about Jesus in the Talmud, the Jewish Talmud. And we explained in the last session what the Talmud really was. And, of course, there are two different ones. There's the Jerusalem Talmud, the Babylonian Talmud. The Babylonian Talmud is the one that people are generally referring to when they speak of this. And this is really a compilation of 
Jewish tradition. It's almost like sacred tradition in the Catholic Church compiled in written form in the age of the rabbis after the destruction of the temple. But what does the Talmud say about Jesus? That's the part that we're going to answer today. But before we do that, I want to remind you that you can send in your question to me at this email address, faith at relevantradio.com, F-A-I-T-H at relevantradio.com. And you can also find me on the X app at Kale Clark, C-A-L-E, Clark with an E. And it's it's really intriguing when it comes to Jesus uh, in, the, in the Jewish Talmud. Um, great article uh, that I read by uh, Dr. Eitan Bar, Dr. Eitan Bar. Um, he is a, a Jewish believer in Jesus. And I, I'm pretty sure I've, I've actually met this guy in Israel. I, 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 I'm trying to rack my brain. But anyways, really, really good um, piece that, that he wrote. And I just want to share this with you because it sheds a lot of light on what some Jews believed about Jesus during the time that the Talmud was being put together. And, and this has been hugely influential in our own time as well. So what the Talmud says about Jesus is very much legendary. Uh, rabbis, you know, by the third century AD, he says, they, they really were trying to separate the disciples of Jesus from other Jews. And putting this legend about Jesus in the Talmud, the hope was that people would stop following Jesus. And this comes, by the way, this, this legend about Jesus in the Talmud is in Tractate Sanhedrin 107b. And essentially the claim that's being made here is that Jesus actually practiced witchcraft. And that's where his miraculous powers really came from. And this is how he lured his fellow Jews away from the God of Israel towards idolatry. So according to this legend, and by the way, spoiler alert, it's obviously not true. According to this legend, Jesus was actually a student of another rabbi, a guy named Rabbi Joshua ben Perahia, And eventually the, the two got into a bit of a tiff. They got into a fight, a dispute, and Jesus in a huff said, I'm out of here. He took off, stopped uh, being a student of this rabbi, went to Egypt, and that's where he allegedly learned witchcraft, brought it back, and corrupted the Israelites. All right, okay, that's, uh, that's an untrue legend. It's an absolute falsehood. This was written by rabbis centuries after the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So here, here's the big problem with this story. <laughs> This, this rabbi that Jesus allegedly studied under, Rabbi Joshua ben Perahia, he actually lived in the 2nd century B.C., way before Jesus was actually born. So th this is absolutely chronologically impossible, and, and it's, it's untrue for many reasons, but that, that, this is one of the biggest reasons. But there's, there's more. There's more stuff in the Talmud about Jesus. Here's, a, here's another uh, section that talks about him, Tractate Avodah, Zera number 17. Now this is this is an interesting story. It's a conversation between this guy named Rabbi Eleazar and Rabbi Akiva about somebody who followed Jesus. And this guy who followed Jesus was a Jew named Jacob of Sicania. Now, it was very well known in the ancient world and, and people wrote about this even outside of the Bible that Jesus's name had healing powers. People were able to heal in the name of Jesus. 
So this guy, Jacob, Jacob of Sicania, who is a follower of Jesus, he's Jewish. Jacob, uh, it sort of comes up in this story. Rabbi Ishmael's nephew gets bitten by a snake. And this guy, Jacob of Sicania, says, well, guess what? I can heal this guy. I've got great news for you. I've got the antidote. And the antidote is this. I can heal your nephew using the name of Jesus. Would you like this? Well, Rabbi Ishmael is like, man, I don't know. He starts saying to himself, man, people know that, they, that people can get healed in the name of Jesus. And, you know, I don't, I don't want to really be associated with this Jesus guy. He's, you know, he's, he's a false messiah. So he's like, no, thanks. I don't want you to try to heal my nephew in the name of Jesus. So just, just go away. So he declines the offer and his nephew, who's been bitten by a snake, by a snake he dies. So... That, that's that's another story in the Talmud about Jesus, where Jesus is at least uh, mentioned obliquely. But it does pay heed to a couple things. What we've heard so far is that the Talmud does admit that Jesus was able to do miracles and that people could be healed in the name of Jesus in the centuries that followed his death on the cross. So th these are these are historical facts that people mention. One more here. In, uh, this is this is a uh, uh, pretty awful to have to mention this, but in the in the Talmud's tractate known as Gittin 56b to 57a, this describes Jesus enduring eternal punishment in hell, submerged in boiling animal excrement. And many people have heard of this one. This is a pretty famous um, uh, account from the Talmud. And allegedly, what's going on here is Jesus is being punished for his misdeeds, leading the people of Israel away the law of Moses towards idolatry. So that what, what's going on here in the Talmud in these centuries that, 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 that occurred as the church was getting going, there was a real fight in the Jewish community between Jews who followed Jesus and believed in him and the, the rabbis that rejected Jesus as the Messiah. So this obviously became a big deal. The, the question of who is Jesus divided Jews and still does to this day. And so... Many Again, the media does not often report this, that there are many Jews, even in the land of Israel, thousands every year who come to believe in Jesus as the Messiah. Some of them become Messianic Jews. They essentially become Protestant Christians as Jews. They have Messianic congregations, but they're very much Protestant outlook. And then some of them join the Catholic Church, which was founded by Jesus Christ, and they become Hebrew Catholics. So... Understand here, there's a lot of propaganda. None of this is historical, the stories about Jesus and the Talmud, but they do pay backhanded compliments to some, to some historical facts that Jesus was known as a wonder worker and a healer, and the people would, in fact, be healed in the name of Jesus in the early centuries of the church. Don't forget, Jesus himself is Jewish. He taught the scriptures, had the true interpretation of the scriptures. His followers were all Jews, especially Rabbi Saul, who became the Apostle Paul. We've been talking about his letter to the Romans, many other of his writings on the Faith Explained program. And so, the New Testament is a very Jewish document. And it, it's just very sad. And, and we, we, this is very much what, what some of the argument in, in Romans 9 to 11 is. Why is it uh, that many people don't recognize Jesus as the Messiah? And will that ever change? Well, many have. People don't forget that. And uh, great question. I'm so glad that you asked that question, Derek, about Jesus and the Talmud. And if you have a question for me on The Faith Explained, you can write to me. The address is faith at relevantradio.com. I'm Cale Clark. This is The Faith Explained. Missed an episode? Check the podcast. Share it with a friend. Give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify. It helps people to discover our show. 
We have no marketing budget. You guys, we're counting on you guys to spread the word. God bless you, and we'll see you in the next episode.